Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna Fleur. This is season six, and this is a bonus episode that we're doing in the middle of our series on the fruit of the spirit. Today, I have the total privilege of bringing to you Richmond Wandera. He's someone whose life is really a case study in the fruit of the spirit. What does it actually look like as it's lived out in a practical way? That's why I wanted to bring you voices and ideas and thinking from people who weren't necessarily the voices you always hear from. So uh, Richmond, Pastor Richmond rather, he's a senior pastor of New Life Baptist Church in Kampala. And actually he's now the leader of the church that he became a Christian at as a boy when he was sponsored by a compassion sponsor, a, a person from North America who was just a teenager themselves, sponsored him. He over time softened to Jesus, became a Christian. His whole family became Christians. There's a whole story. I don't want to tell you the whole thing. He's going to tell you, but he studied a bunch of degrees in the United States. He's got a bunch of letters behind his name, but he chose to not just, I don't know, pursue like an American dream. He actually decided to go back home to his home country. He wanted to serve where he had been so impacted himself. So as the founder and director of the Pastors Discipleship Network, he leads a nonprofit that serves, equips, and trains thousands of pastors across East Africa. This is like a leader of leaders. And we're going to hear why he's doing this specific training and what it's giving them access to, what it's giving their spouses access to that they didn't have before. So he was once a sponsor child himself. He's going to tell us how that actually affected him and changed him, but hear and listen to as he speaks, how he's exemplifying love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Thanks so much to Compassion Canada and to Waybase for making this whole season possible. I can't wait to tell you a little bit about them in this episode, in this bonus, but here for now is my conversation with Richmond Wandera. Spoiler alert, he makes me cry. (laughs) Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 6. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Pastor Richmond, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm really honored to have you. I've I've actually seen you speak before in the United States. So it's an oh. honor to have this conversation today. And, um, and I'd, I'd love you to just introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit, there's a huge story in your life, but can you tell us first about the pastor's discipleship network and introduce yourself that way? Yeah. Thanks, Joanna. My name is Richmond Wandera. I'm the pastor of New Life Baptist Church in Kampala City. Uh, but I'm also the president and founder of Pastors Discipleship Network, a ministry that exists to bring training to African pastors who are untrained in order to deepen the church and to advance the gospel through healthy churches. This vision came to me uh, from a place of brokenness and disappointment and discontentment. I was made pastor without any training, but I had the heart for the people. I had such a a desire to see our people come out of where they were. And so I have an accounting background and I spent time in business, but then coming into the church and having gone through what my family went through, and I'll get get into that 
uh, momentarily, I began to realize that I had to choose whether to continue to pursue the path I was taking or to give myself fully to explaining truth and the gospel to my people. And so I ended up choosing, um, accepting the role to become a pastor at, in, in, at a broken community called Nakawa. And so I, I became a pastor, but without training, without mentoring, without guidance on what does it mean to be a pastor. And I would rush to say here that that's the case for most pastors in Uganda. They would because of either their charisma or because of their love for people or their evident uh, uh, gifting and leadership, they'll be thrown right onto the pastoral platform. But what is often missed is that it doesn't just take charisma and zeal and gusto to run the pastorate because the responsibility of the pastor requires way more than that. And I was going to learn that the hard way. And so um, a few later, a few years later, I was... Um, uh, without an opportunity to study at Moody Bible Institute, where I got my master's degree in spiritual formation and discipleship, came back home and just spent a lot of time uh, talking with the pastors and teaching what I had learned at Moody. And so uh, the Pastors Discipleship Network was formed about nine years ago and with the vision to bring training, like I said, to untrained pastors. And so it's been an amazing space where pastors have come together to learn, to study, to sharpen one another. And we have gone beyond training the pastor to including pastor's spouses and beyond that to including youth pastors. And that's an interesting twist because in Uganda, youth pastors are considered uh, transient pastors. It seems the understanding is uh, if you really want to join the pastorate, you begin by pastoring children. And if you do well there, we move you on to pastor youth. And if you do well there, we move you to an associate and then finally to a senior pastor. And so we are now serving the whole spectrum of people who call who would call themselves pastors uh, in Uganda. And so in, in time, I'm just I'm going to lay it all out on just share with you how we do it and the impact that we are seeing. I mean, it's it's an amazing work that you're doing. I mean, you have you now have a facility. You're growing. You're growing this facility. You're raising funds. A library of resources. You know, books that you know for for some of us we can take for granted that we have access to. I've studied uh, in the theological seminary as well, and and you can just walk in and there's rooms full of books <laughs> uh, yeah. that we that we can you know. You know, we could spend a lifetime studying, and yet you were, you recognize that even maybe this was even the entrepreneur side of you, the business side of you, right. saying, mm-hmm. "Here's here, I see this problem. Um, I can do something about solving it for the the local pastors, this country, my country, the country that I love." You are absolutely right. Um, so, as a pastor, I struggled. I struggled in three critical areas. One was the theological side of things. Without training, I was almost guessing what to teach and what to do every day. And I was nervous about leading all these people who were following me, and I wasn't sure where I was taking them. It was this idea of one blind man leading another. There was a massive struggle that I successfully kept from people who were watching because I wanted them to be confident in their leader. 
But silently, I was looking for someone who could help me understand the gospel, understand the Bible, understand how to read the Bible well so I can teach it well. And that is the crisis many pastors in Africa were going through. So theology was one of my crises. But the other crisis that I had is that as a person, I did not know how to lead a church. Because oftentimes people think, uh, being a pastor means you're a great leader and you're a great manager. Uh, those things don't don't just just happen. Uh, leadership is an art. I, there's a science to it, but it's an art. It's something that you've got to learn. It's it's teachable. And so I, I wasn't trained as a leader. I wasn't trained as a manager, and especially managers of church spaces, which are mostly filled by volunteers. I wasn't trained in that area. And so as an individual, I struggled to see how do I keep this thing going? And, and so later on, I, that, was, that became one of my big passions to help pastors realize that pastoring is beyond the, your time on the pulpit and just casting vision. It's deeper. It's more than that. Now, you might hire people here and there to fill in the gaps. But I can, I, from my experience, it's shown that... Um, that a pastor needs to have leadership skills and they need to press beyond that into the management space. The, the other thing that I that was struggling with is, is my vision for the people who attend the church was not very clear because before being a pastor, I had been a pastor for over 10 years, 10 years as a, as, as, as a pastor in church. But if you asked me whether I knew the Lord, if you asked me whether I was grounded and discipled and I could articulate my faith, I couldn't. And, 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 and John, that's, that's what we're experiencing in Uganda and many parts of the world where so many people are good churchgoers. But if you say, hey, press the pause button and articulate your faith for me, what do you truly believe? What do you believe about life? What do you believe about the meaning of life? What do you believe about death, about afterlife, about the resurrection? What do you what do you believe about life? Why are we here? From a biblical perspective, I can tell you, Juan, many would struggle to articulate their faith. No wonder when cults come through, they sweep and take hundreds, if not thousands, uh, with them. And so wow. for me, that struggle of just not being grounded and not being discipled, constantly walking in doubt, yet having a show of, hey, I belong to this to, to the Christian faith. Uh, all is well. Praise the Lord. How are you doing? I, I learned the language, but in my heart, I was disconnected. And so even walking into the past space, that's those are the struggles I had. And, and come to learn later on, like close to 70 or 80% of pastors in Uganda struggle through the same struggles. And I would say that around the world, many, 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 many pastors are in that same crisis where they are walking in doubt, but they are kind of creating this face and this facade of yeah. all these, oh, I've got this faith grounded and I understand exactly uh, where I'm at. Or that you you are afraid to ask a question because if you do your whole your whole work your life your ministry all the people you influence it all falls apart because you haven't been able to ask the questions and study. And in Uganda, it falls apart really fast because we put pastors on a pedestal. Pastors mm -hmm. should know it all. Pastors cannot be sick. They can't show weakness. They can't confess weakness. They can't even. Talk about not knowing a thing because then there is this doubt that that 
begins to enter people's mind that, whoa, I'm following a leader who doesn't know it all. And it should be common sense that our leaders don't know it all, but just doesn't work like that sometimes. We've seen people leave a church because the pastor has said they're sick. Like, I mean, in Uganda, we have so many people who are sick and uh, they can't afford hospital. Their only hope is the pastor and his words and his prayers. So when the pastor comes off and says they're sick, like, look, I, I can't come to a sick person when I myself am in a crisis that I can't find myself a way out of. And so and, and so in Uganda, most pastors will maintain that pedestal posture and they will not ever admit that they don't know or that they are weak or that they're feeling tired or burnt out or, or they just don't know anything. And so that's some of the, the things that we're currently dealing with as a ministry. No, and I'm and I'm hearing you say too that this this isn't a luxury. This is a basic thing that's needed to lead the church. That because when the pastor has formation and discipleship and education, of course, then the people can have formation and discipleship and education. But when it's the blind leading the blind, uh, yeah. you know, people can't have a deeper relationship with the Lord that brings them through the most difficult times of life. I, I totally agree. I have seen in, in my own ministry how even when I have gone to theology school, um, the nature of knowledge is that it leaks. And I can't remember everything I studied when I was in theology school. And I constantly have to go back to the water well, as we say it in Uganda. You've got to go back to the water well and drink. Otherwise, you're going to run thirsty. And when you're thirsty, you can't help those who are thirsty. And, and so um, my, my, my thing is, is I have learned from my own experience that knowledge leaks, passion leaks, vision leaks motivation leaks, all these things like, and every pastor must cultivate the art of constantly going back for themselves, not to say, I have my degree on the wall, I did well, graduated summa cum laude, and therefore uh, all is well. No, um, the practice of always going back, it, 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 it requires humility to do that. And it also requires a very keen observation of life and some of these other elements that we don't realize leak, yet in fact they do. So, so um, we always are calling pastors, please come back to study. Uh, Joanna, let me just share with you some of the, the frustrations we have had as a ministry. Um, and this has to do with pastors who are quote-unquote successful. Uh, oftentimes in Uganda, when a person is pastoring a church that's over 500, they view themselves as successful. And if they're invited for any event, uh, they won't come unless they're teaching or they're the ones on the pulpit, on the ostrom, giving instruction to other pastors. And for, for the first five years of our ministry, we just realized that there was this syndrome. We couldn't even name it. We couldn't put a finger to it. But every time we invited successful pastors, they just didn't come. They didn't come. They, they, they felt, look, I've been successful without your training. Why do I right. need it now? Yeah. And, and so, so we, we've faced that over and over again. But we began to see sometimes the more we've talked about what you and I are talking about and people are listening and then realizing they need to go back to the well and drink. And for funding, I mean, it's a very practical question. How do these pastors afford to come to the school? Uh, is, so, are they sponsored or, or how does that work? 
Yes, we require the pastors to pay 25% of their time uh, at Pastors Discipleship Network. And that's because many of these pastors are untrained. Uh, and because they're untrained, they are already in crisis. And because of that crisis, it's lifting up their need for help. And as they're running for help, uh, it, it already indicates that financially they're not doing well. And so what we do as Pastors Discipleship Network is to come to pastors and to churches and to schools and theology and say to them, look, would you stand with a pastor? Would you come alongside a pastor who is hungry to learn so he can be a better teacher? Would you come alongside and help such a person uh, attend a conference or attend a training or have access to our library because it costs to maintain the library. It costs to keep these things going. And then we've had people who've gone to our website, which is pdnafrica.org, and they've just been very generous to see pastors and communities come uh, to, to learn such that they can become stronger and more grounded churches. Wow. And it, I mean, it's not even just the pastors. You're also with the pastor's wife or the, the women who are leading as well. Can you tell me what you're doing for, for the women? In 2014, um, one pastor's wife walked up to me and said, uh, Pastor Richmond, thank you for what you're doing for fellow pastors. We really appreciate it. But we think as pastor's wives that you're missing a big piece. Uh, and I said, what piece was that? She said, look, um, who do you think influences the pastor the most? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was caught off guard in that moment. I was like, oh, I guess the pastor's wife said, yeah, exactly. I uh, said, look, um, we are called as partners. We are called as helpers. We are called as supporters. But in order to support somebody, carry or lift anything, you've got to be strong. You've got to be grounded yourself. How will I interact with pastor on a theological topic? How will I interact with pastor on the leadership crisis that he's dealing with? If I don't, I'm not built myself in my leadership. How about my confidence that has been wiped away by our culture saying women are supposed to sit all the way at the back, don't say anything until, oh, what am I to do with that? And, and so it was in 2014 that our ministry to pastor's wives um, was birthed. And we began to hear that there's this whole group of people which has no space across the entire country where they can go and feel safe and share their struggles because if they dare share their struggles in church that would mean uh, a problem or a crisis for the pastor it yeah. would mean lack of confidence in the pastor it would have ramifications like like she's like she would not want anything close to her husband and so finally we got this this safe space at Pastors Discipleship Network, where pastors' wives are able to come as girls and just talk and just share, hey, this is my experience, this is what I'm finding, this is all my struggles. And I began to look out for speakers who, who felt uh, a very strong calling to minister to pastors' wives. And that has just taken off. We're training pastors' wives in a 10 weeks uh, program where we teach them um, who they are and their role and their place in the church. It's a massive thing when, when a person feels grounded and and gets clarity on what their role is. And we also instruct them in, in matters of, of skilling themselves. Uh, a lot of this has to do with um, discovering who they are in terms of how God met them, their unique personalities. Now, we include a lot of psychology and, um, and some of these um, main line uh, classes of 
of you know personality personality studies and all of that and and that just brings a lot of aha moments for many of these pastors wives and then we also teach them uh in terms of leadership how, how do you be a strong leader how do you lead where you are and we help them ground get them grounded there then we also teach them skills because many of these pastors wives are stay home moms and then some of their kids are now grown and at home poverty is a massive pro- problem in the lives of many here and so we teach them a skill that how can you leverage your spare time to to actually earn and make money at home that's why we've brought together business people i've partnered with Baylor University out of Waco Texas and they've poured richly into pastors wives and we are continually reaching out to those who understand how to free uh people who are in the same space as pastors wives from poverty from this extreme poverty that ends up sometimes impacting the gospel and the ministry on the pulpit so pastors wives love pastors discipleship network they call it their home uh whenever i walk around my, i'm just smiling because they are giggling and they are talking and they i mean they're having their small groups and sometimes i want to join in but i'm not allowed and so, <laughs> so uh, it's amazing it's amazing I really hope that you're enjoying this conversation with Richmond. I just wanted to pause and remind you that in the show notes here and wherever you're listening to this episode, watching this episode, you can go to compassion.ca slash good and check out some ways that you can practically and in life-giving ways get involved in the lives of children just like who Richmond was. I want you to do it. Check it out. Just just browse the website and see if it inspires you or see if it triggers something about someone else you know that in a way that they can get involved using their gifts and their passions in order to transform the lives of children around the world. Compassion.ca slash good. Find it in the show notes. Go there today. Um, You know, you're talking so much about really the you're an entrepreneur. You have, you're a pastor, you have a heart for ministry, but you're an entrepreneur. So later in the conversation, I want to get a few very practical ideas of what can the pastor learn from the entrepreneur. But before we get there, we have to hear more of your own personal story. And it relates to compassion, of course, in your compassion in your life. But uh, can you tell us about your life? Because what you're, what you've built is remarkable. This school by God's help, by God's grace is impact acting eternally and generations of people are being impacted, but it's also because of what was invested in you as a boy. So uh, tell us a little bit about your own, your own story. Uh, my, my childhood was a difficult one. I saw my father murdered when I was eight years old. It was a time when across the country, many people thought it was the end of the world. And I saw my life fall apart. My whole family, I was the third born of six brothers and sisters and a mother who is now single. My mother, she never went to school. She needed to stay home and to take care of us. She was married off as a teenager. By the time she was 25, she had all six of us. And so she was just in a position where she knew she would stay home, take care of us, and my father would be the breadwinner. But now this was no longer the case. My father was murdered, removed from us. And while we were struggling with the psychological impact of that and the emotional impact and just the sheer hopelessness, 
I cannot forget the day my uh, our landlord at the time just said to us, uh, you've got to leave. You've got to leave and go where wherever you go, I don't care. Um, you can't afford to pay rent anymore. And um, we left our home and it's probably the longest walk of my life. Mm-hmm. I remember us carrying our items and going to Uganda's worst slum at the time called Naguru. Uh, just the stage. When you were walking into Naguru, the place where my mother had found this one-roomed house, a one-room house, um, we, we just walked around. I could look around and I can see kids who, I mean, it's hopelessness written all over them. And that was going to be me. And it didn't take long before uh, my mother said to us that, look, we don't have money for food. And my mother's health at the time was also deteriorating. And so what began as visits to the street became a lifestyle. I hadn't um, gone to school in a year. Um, I was uh, in a place where there was no food. So I found myself as a protector of my kid sister, Doreen, who was six at the time. And I used to, I mean, our home was like, we would wake up in the morning and then I would go with Doreen one direction. And my brother Richard would go with Ronald another direction. Raphael and Sharon would take another direction just to increase the chances of finding things along the way. And I cannot imagine the pain in my mother's heart just seeing her children go. And especially in the context where child sacrifice and child abduction was rampant. In a place where people would drive carelessly on very bad roads and anything could happen to your child as they're walking along the street. And we would leave in the morning at about 7 to 8 a.m. We'd begin to go to try to find breakfast. And then we'd come back later on by about 7 or 8 p.m. Every single day. I mean, it stretched my mother's heart so much that in in the recent time, I was actually talking with my mom and kind of saying, look, what was this like for you? Because I know what it was like for me. What was it like for you? And my mother cannot finish telling the story because it just messed with her. And so uh, I came back home oftentimes and um, our roof was leaking whenever it rained. I mean, whenever I saw the clouds forming and I knew this was going to be a rainy night, it was just begin to fear. Uh, And uh, one day it was raining so hard and the center old iron sheet that was covering our house just was blown off. Joanna, the amount of water that entered our room that night, we couldn't sleep. We all stood up and just stood on the side wall and just looked at each other and were all dead quiet. And just hearing the thunder and the lightning and the water that just came pouring in. And, and that day, I felt like dignity was washed from me. I felt like, like the essence of living or even just the way I saw myself changed as a child. And um, it just didn't stop. Um, until one day, my mother, when malaria came in and we began just falling sick, because whenever the rainy season would come, mosquitoes would begin coming and one child after another just falls sick. And my mother realized she has no money to treat us when we are sick. Um, And uh, if she doesn't reach out for help, we will die. And so she was not a Christian. She goes to her friends and she's saying, look, I need help. And one of her friends said to her, look, why don't you go to the church? Go to the church over there. Are we here that they sponsor children? And she was like, church? Um, you know, will, will I be accepted? Will I be judged? I, I don't, she doesn't go to church. 
But because she's desperate, she goes to church. And we were not told it's compassion. I think this is the beauty of compassion. Nowhere will you find a compassion sign or a compassion mm. international sign. Here, you just find the local church. And compassion empowers the local church. And that's who greeted my mother when my mother came in. And my mother was able to tell her story. And immediately, they ran to our home. And they, they began to take photographs of me and of my sisters and, and uh, just took our profile information, our birthday information. They asked me, like, what's your favorite game and what? I was just like, oh, well, this is cool to have people interested in us uh, this much. And on a long story short, um, three months later, three months later, I got the news. I got the news that a 15-year-old girl, hmm. a 15-year-old girl had the maturity to sponsor me. Hmm. She was willing to live simply so I could simply live, to live wow. with less, so I could live with more, to, to give so that I could go to school and have a chance and have health. And so uh, that, 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 that almost caused my mom to fall off her chair when she was told who my sponsor was, a 15-year-old girl. And so uh, that just turned everything around for me. I know that by the time I was eight, I lost my father. He was murdered. By the time I was nine, I was out of school and on the street. By the time I was 10 years old, I remember I had had malaria over 10 times in my life. And now I'm 11. And here I am finally being told, you can now go back to school. Wow. You can now be a child again. You can now come to the Compassion Project, which is a church, and play on any of these swings, whatever swing <laughs> you just go on it. I went, Joanna, I, I was crazy <laughs> swing that's all i wanted to do every day just to swing and to play on those swings and on those seesaws and those merry-go-rounds i mean that was i had missed that to be a, and kid. I had a child again yeah. and uh, so i remember when i got my first mosquito net <laughs> it going home and and i remember us hanging it in the middle of our of our one room and, and releasing it so that it was now wide, like almost like a wedding gown. And, and all of us, six of us fitted under this one mosquito net. It was one of the best feelings because I was not afraid of mosquitoes anymore. Wow. And, uh, Joanna, God blessed us so much. Just hardly four months later, my, I was told that my sister Doreen had also gotten a sponsor. But her sponsor was now from Australia, which was a different country now. And uh, we got the second mosquito net. And whew, another flood went down. And so the girls were sleeping in another net while boys were sleeping in another net. And my life just began to change. Uh, by the time I was 14, I finally heard the gospel. Pastor Peter preached out of Genesis 39. Never forget that, that day. And he said, Look, Joseph, the young boy, Joseph, he went through all these problems, not of his own making, but God had a plan for him. And that God continues to love and reveal his plans for each one of us. And has he talked about this God and his love for us and his willingness to die for us? That day, I made a decision to follow Christ at the age 14. You know what? By the time I was 18, I had seen all my siblings make a decision to follow Christ. 
When I was 19, my mother invited herself again to the church and she sat at the back while Pastor Peter preached the gospel. And I can never forget this day, my mother just walking forward and just kneeling down and giving her life to Christ. All my family loves the Lord and we're all now involved in ministry. Joanna, for all eternity, not just life in this world. And, and yes, there is there's cares in this world. There's food to distribute and there is uh, kids to take to school and there is uh, health to take care of. But for all eternity, my family's life is changed forever. I look at how my brother treats his wife and I'm like, this is different from what our culture says. This is different. He loves his wife. He honors his wife. I do the same for, for my wife, Rosette. Our lives are different. We have a kingdom culture right now that we're living by. And this was possible simply because one 15-year-old girl, one 15-year-old girl made a private decision. She didn't buy into this narrative that you're too young. Wait until you're 25 and you've got a job and now you can make a difference. Or maybe wait until you're 45 and then you will make all this difference in the world. No, she did it then. I always wonder, Joanna, I always wonder what would have happened to me if she hadn't made the decisions she made at the time that she did. I think about my friend, Daniel. Daniel was probably one of the most brilliant kids in my, in my age in the slum. He used to stay under a bridge because his mother and father had died and nobody had taken him in. So he used to sleep under a bridge, but probably one of the most brilliant people I had met. Daniel used to come and play soccer with us and we used to play every single day. You know, we play and play and play. And one day, this is what distinguishes Daniel among all my friends. Um, he was a very smart individual. He was a referee oftentimes. And I remember this one day, crazy day. I'm just going to tell you the story. And so I'm standing, I'm, I'm at, the, at the line with my opponent and the ball brushes me, uh, but in such a slight way and it goes out. And, um, and so I'm arguing for the ball, yet it was supposed to be for my opponent, but I'm arguing for it because I have, you know, it has to be on my side and all of that. And Daniel quickly runs to us and says, okay, look, so none of you is admitting that you know, it brushed you before you went out. So why don't I, all of you, both of you draw in, let me throw the ball between you two and you guys will fargo and fight for it. And then we, we keep moving. And I quickly said, yes, I said, yes, let's do that. And Daniel got that ball and gave it to my opponent and said it belonged to him. And so later I asked, I asked Daniel, I said, Daniel, how did you know the ball was for the op opponent? And told me how quickly you said and agreed to that. <laughs> <laughs> told me that not your ball. And so, Joanna, um, it wasn't long after that, maybe three, four months after that, we had a massive storm. The storm swept under the bridge. And, and Daniel's body was found washed down. And I lost my friend. And I always asked myself, Daniel was smarter than me in every single way. And yet, the sponsorship fell on me. And I'm always having that indebtedness in my mind. I was like, Daniel was one of the smartest kids. He was bright. I mean, he was just a potential doctors or surgeons or neuroscience, whatever it is. But, but he, he was down. And so, barring him was one of the hardest things I've seen as a child. And so I, I always live very grateful. I said, look, this Heather who decided to live with less so I could live with more, 
um, God bless her. I prayed for her more than she thinks I did. And, and so uh, a few years later, I continue hard in school and I worked very hard in school because I was determined to run away and just leave this poverty behind me. I ended up graduating with an accounting degree and I graduated summa cum laude uh, with a first class degree in accounting. I proceeded to do my CPA and was invited back by the university to teach. And I taught accounting and also practiced accounting for a while until uh, I encountered a scenario where uh, my mother ended up forgiving the man who stole everything from her or took everything from her. And two days before that man died, my mother led him to the Lord. And wow. it was that encounter, that gospel right in front of me that made me say, look, uh, I, I want to be a part of this. I want to live my life for this. Um, yes, Naguru Islam is poor and we need food and we need uh, clothing and we need medical care, but this is what we need. We need the gospel because it goes to places and enters spaces that food cannot reach. It's the cure of the world. Jesus is the answer of the world. And so, and so I committed myself to the pastorate. And it's just amazing that, Joanna, today I am the lead pastor of the very church that hosted the Compassion Project that rescued me when I was only eight years old. Wow. Uh, it, the same just, church. <laughs> I am pastoring that church today. And I also get now to, to give to East Africa because my ministry is now serving pastors across East Africa. So we're in Southern Sudan. We're in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're in Rwanda and we're in Uganda as well. In two years, we'll be moving into Kenya. And so we'll, that will be our fifth country. And uh, we are serving over 6,000 pastors today. And God has just continued to put his hand on that which was started by a 15-year-old. It's just like this fish and loaves, saying, look, this is what I have. And God has a way of creating ripples and multiplying in ways we could never possibly imagine. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing a story. It's uh, what I say a lot in this, you know, work we do here is we say that the, we're reminded that we it's not just good news. The gospel is not just good news. It's the best news in the world. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that that's that, good. that that's uh good. that it transforms a life, a family, and then a you know, an entire community in Jesus' name. I want to take a moment in the midst of this episode to talk to you a little bit about Waybase because just like Richmond has been doing in his country and in all of East Africa in Uganda and beyond, he's about bringing the church together for good, which is exactly what Waybase is about. And that's why I want to make sure not to have them be missed because if you're sitting in Canada or North American thinking, you know, this is amazing what he's doing for his people, what are some ways that we can leverage and think strategically about what we're doing as the church? church in our country. Well, I want you to think about Waybase, especially if you're Canadian, because right now it's in Canada. So if you go to waybase.com, you're going to find new opportunities for impact. You're going to see what other ministries are doing in your area. So you can find partners. You can discover what's going on locally and globally to leverage that together, make a better difference, understand your community through real data on the ground of what's going on in your community. So you can see where there are needs that you can respond to that no one else is yet. So for example, you can 
see uh, if there's a large population of a certain language group in your region that nobody is reaching with a church in that language or a ministry to those people in that language, you might want to start something like that. These are the kinds of access and resources you have at waybase.com. But the first thing you need to do is claim your listing. If you're a Christian church or ministry in Canada, it's 99% likely that there already is a listing there for you, but you need to claim it. So go to waybase.com, the link's in the show notes, claim your listing and access the entire suite of free features to help you do more good in your community. Do more good in your community. Be inspired to bring the fruit of the spirit with you wherever you go, just like Richmond's doing as we learn from him today. You know, before we close, I would love to get your insights very practically. Um, You know, thank you so much for sharing this story. The, The truth is, of course, we're trying to capture a life in, in just a short period yeah. of time. It's it's not possible. I want people to, to find your work and, and they're going to go on, on YouTube and try to find more of your story, uh, t- your teaching there. And we want them to find the Pastors Discipleship Network. We want people to give generously to what you're doing. This work is Thanks. so important. Uh, and we'll make sure that everybody has the links and they can, they can find you. But before we end, if you can be very practical, the question I had was around what are a few practical things that a pastor could learn from an entrepreneur or a business person? What are some things that a pastor needs to learn from business? Because you have both and you're training people in both. I'd love, I'd love your insights into that. Well, let me first speak contextually. So in Uganda, most pastors are not paid a salary. So it's not a choice. You've got to be bivocational. And so there is a lot that's in the entrepreneurial world that has to be part of your world. You can't escape it. And so anyone who's thinking in terms of investing in pastors and uh, just coming alongside pastors in Uganda, that's our context. And in some ways, it's in the context, the same context in other spaces of the world. And so, so that's the first thing that uh, our, our worlds are not that far apart. Um, th- there, is, there is a product that we are, we, are, we are providing. There is a message that we are delivering. There is a branding that we have. And, and the more we think clearly about these whole concepts, uh, the, the more clear we can uh, bring uh, the message to our people and to uh, those that desperately need it. So I wanted to say that all just to lay a ground for the context. So one of the biggest things I have learned is that in my financial experience, so as, as an accountant, um, I learned the, the place and the importance of, of budgeting. I learned the importance of financial stewardship. I learned the importance of reporting and not just reporting in such a way that people know that the money has, has been kept safe, uh, but reporting in such a way that the data is actually useful. Mm-hmm. And, and how has that been very valid? Now, for everyone who has been part of our story as Pastors Discipleship Network has been very impressed with our accountability, with our reporting, and also our utility uh, of the financial information. So it's not just trial balances and balance sheets and income statements. It's, it's, so what does that mean? And how does that guide? And can those statements actually be signs from God or messages from God and what he wants us to do? And so that's, that's one of the things that we can't uh, treat ministry as some, something that uh, just operates in a way that's, that, that the world cannot understand. 
No, uh, God understands that we are humans and, and both Christians and non-Christians should be able to look at how the church is going. And so that's a living organism. It's growing. These are the numbers. We're keeping the data on it. If you can't measure it, you can't tell whether it's time to rejoice or not. And so, so that's, that's the first thing I want to say that, that my background has enabled, uh, um, uh, such operations, processes, and systems in such a way that uh, all who are part of the process and part of the stewardship of this ministry's mission and vision feel all connected. They know exactly what's going on because they understand the reporting. And and any pastor that is not taking that very, very seriously, uh, or maybe taking it seriously, but but not as seriously, I would challenge you to think about um, how else would someone know what's going on if, if not by, by some of these already clear business um, opportunities? So, so that's, that's one of the things. The second thing is, is that I think one of, one of the things that the world does is that they, they keep their eye on the bottom line or at least on the baseline. And, and this, is some, this is a business principle uh, that, that anyone uh, who is interested in financial records or financial statements has to keep their eye on the bottom line, has to keep their eye on how does this change over here impact this bottom line over here? And, and that kind of thinking has been amazingly important to me in decision-making. So we ask the question, how does a pastor make uh, a decision on what budget is allocated for evangelism, what budget is allocated to missions, what budget is allocated towards their own salaries? How does the pastor make such a decision? Except that they have, there has to be a very clear definition on what the bottom line is. What is that thing that we are targeting? Where must we be at what time? And how is God leading us in the direction? And then all these other things seem to fall in line once that is clear. So uh, working in the business world is difficult. Why? I mean, I, I know CEOs that work like like 14 to 15 hours a day. And the reason they're doing that is because it's not easy. It's not easy to operate successfully in the financial world and to compete. Well, uh, if you transfer some of that understanding into our space, we've got to realize we operate in, in a grace-filled environment where we have the spirit of God and we have the grace and we have the opportunity for Sabbath and there is rest, but there is hard work too. And I say one of the things I have learned from my people in the business world is they work hard. They put in the work. They are not willing for anything to roll off their hands. And I think that in Uganda especially, pastors begin to relax when they begin to feel successful. Whenever they feel like, oh, look, I, I never dreamed I'd pass the church of 700. <laughs> I thought I would be five. That would be fine. And then all of a sudden they're at 700 and all of a sudden they, they press the pause button and they begin to cost. And then not realizing that 700 in a community of 65,000 people, what are you talking about? And so it, they need to keep investing and keep working. And, and, and hard work is, it can be seen in, in the life of Paul, uh, where Paul says, I worked harder than you all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was work at work in me. What's Paul saying? I worked hard. I mean, think about writing, just the, the, paper, the book of Romans alone. <laughs> that, that's work. Just, just think about the pieces. That's work. And so, and so I think that a lot can be drawn from the business world that would enable a pastor to really settle themselves into a place where they realize, man, I've got to take this seriously. 
I've got to take this seriously. I've got to steward it. Uh, it it's, I think one of the pastor's roles is to steward, is to steward. And, and I, I want to end this by saying, Jesus said when he came to the end of his life that, Father, I have not lost a single one that you entrusted to me, except that who is destined to be lost. I've not lost a single one. And Christ was saying, I've been a good steward. And, and, and when you read through the gospel of Mark, Mark always has this language of immediately. And he immediately did this and he walked quickly here. And you, there's this idea of Jesus doing and living in such a way that he changed the world in three years of his life and ministry. And so I, I would like to encourage people that COVID has slowed us down. I don't know a person who has not felt like you know, once in a while lazy or just hard to get out of bed and go before their country because it's COVID and it's just basically shifted uh, the work posture. Uh, but I would like to encourage pastors that friends, so much has gone wrong during this COVID time. So many people have lost their father, their time in the word, their time in prayer, and they're just waiting for a well-prepared message so that they can come back uh, to hope. And so if we put in the work and just kind of draw some of these things from business from the business world um, and their tenacity and their fault and their grit, um, so much will happen uh, for us and for our Lord uh, because he's at the center of it all. Pastor Richmond, uh, your insight is hard fought for. Your wisdom is because you've lived it. Uh, the, the story of, you know, from where you started to, to a 15-year-old making a decision that changed your life and then going to become an accountant and then a pastor with education in, you know, multiple countries of the world. And now to then, you know, endeavor your life to minister, disciple, educate other pastors and leaders. Your story is so inspiring. I'm personally really touched today by, by hearing it. Thank you, Pastor, for for your time and and for your insight. I do hope that people listening will listen closely uh, to what you're saying because there's so much for us to take from what you're teaching us and uh, to apply to our own ministry and our own work, wherever in the world uh, we may be. So thank you so much. Thanks, Joanna. Uh, yeah, and of course, we'll make sure uh, we want people to go to Pastors Discipleship Network, just check out Compassion and see the opportunities people have to get involved in changing lives um, of pastors and of children. So uh, just thank you again. I'm so excited and thank you so much for allowing me to be part of, of this. Um, uh, a lot that's been going on in my own world um, has changed my perspective and constantly shifts me and pushes me to the edge. And so I'm so glad that we could connect on this platform. Thank you for Joanna for creating such a platform that, you know, we can connect as pastors and, and leaders and Christians who are trying to serve our, our God faithfully. And so thank you so much for this amazing platform. Thank you so much to Richmond for this conversation. Uh, if you liked this episode, if this inspired you, if he touched you, I encourage you to share this with a friend, share this with someone who needs to be encouraged today about what is going on in the church around the world. Maybe you know someone from East Africa. Maybe you know Richmond. We'd love to hear from you. If you know him, leave a comment, you know, just to talk back at us. We'd love to hear. Uh, we'd love to hear how this impacted you. Thanks, of course, to Compassion for making this interview possible. Check out the links in the show notes and visit their website. See how you can get involved. Sponsoring a child just like Richmond makes a difference. It changed the trajectory of his life. It changes a family. 
changes a community. It actually can change a nation. So get involved. Also, if you want to get involved locally in doing good, go to waybase.com. If you're a Canadian, claim your listing. Next up on the podcast, next, as we go back to our regularly, regularly scheduled program, we have Dr. Mary C. Lynn, clinical psychologist, and we're talking about self-control. So if you want some quote unquote free therapy with Dr. Mary, come on, get it next week. See you then. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your